Okay. Uh, research, their research shows that about half of all people don't see the gorilla. <laughs> Who didn't see the gorilla this morning? Ah, there you go. See, that's just, we'll come back to that in a minute. But first of all, we're just going to turn back to the book of Joshua. That will make sense at some point as being relevant. Um, last week, in, no, two weeks ago, in kicking off uh, a series from the book of Joshua... I made a few comments about the book of Joshua as a whole, and I just want to say as we go into the second chapter of Joshua this morning, that all of those things that I said were true of the book of Joshua as a whole are true of this chapter this morning. I said a couple of weeks ago that the book of Joshua is historical, and we're about to get to a bit of a story about the city of Jericho, and history tells us that Jericho did indeed exist as a city in this point in history, actually, it's the oldest known city in the whole world. There's evidence that the place was inhabited as far back as 8,000 BC, and it was fortified from about 7,000 BC. So this story this morning relates to history. It's not just a fable or, a, or something like that. Again, I said last week that the style of the book of the Joshua is edited highlights, a bit like Match of the Day, Uh, or perhaps a little bit more like Match of the Day and then Sky Sports and ITV's edited highlights, all edited together to make sure we get the best possible coverage of all the most interesting and important things that went on. But it can leave us sometimes feeling like we're missing a little bit of it as well this morning. And so that is the case for this uh, bit of the story this morning. There are some things that are said that you're left wondering, how does that fit together with that? One particular thing is that, as we'll read, Rahab was told to tie a cord to the window of her house that was part of the city wall so that when the Israelites came along, they'd be able to see which was her house. But several chapters on, we're going to find that when the Israelites marched around Jericho, all the walls fell down. So how did that work? Those are the kind of loose ends that the style of writing leaves for us. As well as that, this chapter does raise some difficult questions. And in particular, a question to do with the total destruction of uh, tribes and people, which we will touch on a little bit this morning. And then, fourthly, I said a couple of weeks ago that the theme of the book as a whole is the victory of faith. And the key character in the chapter that we have this morning is a woman called Rahab, who has a place in the New Testament's Hall of Fame of people who have faith. That's Hebrews chapter 11, where all these people are listed off. And along with the greats of Abraham and Moses and and so on, Rahab gets in there as someone who demonstrated faith. And this morning is the story uh, of how she demonstrated that faith. A couple of weeks ago, when we looked at chapter one, the focus of the story was on getting in to the promised land as a place of rest. In this chapter... It's the same sort of story, but the focus is different. This week, the focus is on what is going on in the minds and the hearts of people as Israel comes to start entering into the promised land. And the backdrop to this moment in history is that God was on the move. Uh, Forty years earlier... God had been on the move, answering the cries of an oppressed people, 
the Hebrew people in Egypt, oppressed as slaves, cried out to the Lord, and he answered and delivered them from slavery through a whole series of miracles, got them out into the desert, and then they came to the promised land and were uncertain that they could conquer it, and they uh, therefore were judged by God. And he said, this whole generation is not going to make it into the promised land because of this unbelief. But here we are, 40 years later, coming back, and Moses had been leading the people back towards the promised land. But before they got to the promised land, whilst they were still east of the River Jordan, before crossing over the Jordan into the land of Canaan, uh, they had to cross through the territories of a couple of, uh, of tribes, and those tribes didn't want them to pass through and actually came out against them in military force, but the Israelites entirely overwhelmed them. The story of that is told in a couple of places. It's told in Numbers, the book of Numbers in 21. Israel sent messengers ahead to Sihon, king of the Amorites. Let us pass through your country. We won't turn aside into any field or vineyard or drink any water from any well. We will travel along the king's highway, it's like the motorway of the ancient world, until we have passed through your territory. But Sihon would not let Israel pass through his territory. He mustered his entire army and marched out into the desert against Israel. But Israel, however, put him to the sword and took over his land. And then another people come out under their king, Og. It's a great name, Og. Um, I think it'd be quite hard. No, no, I won't get distracted there. Um, and the same thing happens and actually at the end of Numbers 21 it says that the Israelites struck him down together with his sons and his whole army leaving them no survivors so Israel was approaching the promised land under Moses' leadership and they started to see some military victory in fights that they hadn't picked fights that they were trying to avoid But they started to see some military victory. And now it was time for them to cross the Jordan and to get into the land of Canaan and to start conquering one by one the city-states of the land of Canaan. Canaan was not one big nation. It was a whole series of city-states. That is, that there was a city that was fortified And there was a bit of land around it which people could live in and farm, which provided enough food for the people in the city. And if people came along to attack them, then they could run into that city and stay there for a while. So you had like a a social group that lived together and depended upon each other and had city and land. And this was very common in the ancient world as to how things worked in an insecure world. And so Canaan was full of these city-states. And the first one that they were going to pay attention to was Jericho. Jericho was just opposite them across the River Jordan from where they were. So I'm going to read from Joshua chapter 2. If you've got your Bible, do turn to it um, and have a look at it as I'm reading through. The backdrop to this, as you'll see, is that God is on the move and news of this has got to the people of Jericho. So here we go, Joshua chapter 2. Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. 
Go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. Probably ought to pause, actually, just at that point. Um, There's a little bit of a conflict seemingly going on with them. They've been told to go and spy out the land, and they go and stay in a brothel. If you look at the footnote, it says possibly an innkeeper. Uh, The reality of hospitality in the ancient world was that if you were a traveller, the people along your way would, as part of the wider culture, be willing to put you up for a few nights. They didn't have hotels. There were no travel-ins in the ancient world, and people depended on each other whilst travelling. It's still the culture. It was an aspect of ancient culture which was taken into Islam, and Muslims are expected to be able to, to, to provide three nights lodging for people as part of what it is to be a good Muslim. When I was volunteering for the Citizens Advice Bureau uh, in East Oxford, I had a man come to see me who spent his whole life, uh, a lovely Muslim man, but spent his whole life going from one Muslim household to another, getting three nights lodging from them. It's part of an ongoing culture. And that's how it worked in the ancient world. So normally you would expect to go into somebody's home to find a place to stay. But the spies obviously had a bit of an issue with that. And the only alternative that there would have been would have been this kind of inn being maintained by Rahab, but in the same kind of way that the phrase massage parlour has a kind of double meaning. It's kind of ambi- it's suggestive, isn't it? Um, it might be entirely above board, but it might not be. That's what this phrase here has. That's why it says in the main text, the house of a prostitute, but there's a footnote that says possibly an innkeeper. The point it was a bit dodgy. That's the point. It was a suggestive kind of a thing. And not the kind of thing that you would go to out of choice. But what we don't know, this is one of the loose ends, we don't know whether they went there to have a good time or whether they went there because they had to or whether they went there because it was a good idea because it was a place where they might be able to pick up intelligence from all kinds of people that might be slightly disloyal to the people of Jericho and be willing to tell. We just don't know. But there we are. They were told to spy and they went to the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. And the king of Jericho was told, look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So if they were trying to hide, they didn't do a very good job of it. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab. Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house because they've come to spy out the whole land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, yes, the men came to me but I didn't know where they'd come from. And at dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, the men left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You might catch up with them. But she'd taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax she'd laid out on the roof. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan, and as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given this land to you, and that a great fear of you has fallen on us, so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We've heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to Sihon and Og 
the two kings of the Amorites each of, east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts sank, and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. See, Canaanite gods were either gods in heaven that you didn't have to trouble about too much, or they were gods on the earth that were not very powerful. And they had lots of gods, but none like the Lord. And she recognized something of the reality of this God of the Israelites, different to the gods of her people. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I've shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and my mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. Our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell what we're doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. So she let them down by a rope through the window, for the house she lived in was part of the city wall. Now, she'd said to them, go to the hills so that the pursuers won't find you. Hide yourselves there three days until they return, and then go on your way. And the men said to her, this oath that you made us swear will not be binding on us unless... When we enter the land, you've tied this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And unless you've brought your father and mother, brothers and all your family into your house, if anyone goes outside your house into the street, his blood will be on his own head. We won't be responsible. As for anyone who's in the house with you, his blood will be on our head. If a hand is laid on him, oh, yeah, his blood will be on our head if a hand is laid on him. But... If you tell what we're doing, we will be released from the oath you made us swear. (coughs) Agreed, she replied. Let it be as you say. So she sent them away, and they departed. And she tied the scarlet cord in the window. When they left, they went into the hills and stayed there three days until the pursuers had searched all along the road and returned without finding them. Then the two men started back. They went down out of the hills, forded the river, and came to Joshua, son of Nun, and told him everything that had happened to them. They said to Joshua, the Lord has surely given the whole land into our hands. All the people are melting in fear because of us. So what we're going to do is just think together about this moment in history, a moment when God was very obviously on the move, and just going to think about it a little bit from the different perspectives of the different people involved. And first of all, I'm going to think about what was going on for the people of Jericho. The truth was that for them, God's action terrified them. God's action terrified the people of Jericho. This raises one of these difficult questions. So we're just going to jump into this difficult question, which is to do with total destruction. The people of Jericho were not afraid, particularly because of the Red Sea being parted. There's a story a long way uh, away from them. They were afraid because of the total destruction that had happened to the Amorites. And the relevance of the Red Sea was it meant that the River Jordan 
which was currently separating the Israelite army from them, wasn't really a barrier. That was why they were now interested in the story of the Red Sea. Total destruction meant that all men, women, and children were killed. There's a specific word for it in Hebrew, harim. Uh, And it was a word that was applied to things that were absolutely set apart. It's actually the same root that the word harim comes from, being a place where the king kept all of his wives and concubines and other men were absolutely forbidden to go into. It was a place set apart. And things... Uh, And the word was used to apply to things that were willingly given to God. If something was given to God, it was understood to be set apart. If you gave a thing to God, then practically what would happen was it would be put in the treasury of the house of God and kept there separate. If you chose to give an animal to God then it would be killed. On the logical basis that if it was God's, no one else could have it. I mean, you couldn't give an animal to God and then a priest go home with it. If it was God's, the only thing that could be done would be for it to be killed. And what is going on here is that the same thing can also apply to people. In Leviticus Chapter 27 and verse 29, there's a specific rule which shows that there's something that went on here that is quite hard for us to understand, but was evidently a part of the community life of the people of Israel. It says in Leviticus 27 and verse 29 that no person devoted to destruction may be ransomed. He must be put to death. So there's an application, this principle that if you give something to the Lord, it has to be totally put away At least some, we don't know in what circumstances it might have applied, but it actually went on with people as well. Perhaps if there's a a story of somebody by mistake ending up devoting something to the Lord and saying, whatever comes out, I can't remember that person's name, who was it? Jephthah, one of the judges, thank you, says, out of gratitude to God, whatever comes out of the front door of my house uh, when I come back, Um, Whatever comes out, I'm going to give it to God. It happened to be his daughter. And because of this understanding of what it meant to give something irrevocably to God, he placed himself in the situation of unwillingly being obliged to kill her. Other nations, when they conquered, did this as a matter of course, just as a sort of by way of historical background, Uh, In Isaiah 37, uh, the Assyrians come and they threaten the people of Israel. And they say, don't you know that everywhere we go and everywhere we conquer, we just kill everybody? That's what we do and you should be afraid of us. God had commanded specifically that when the Israelites went into Canaan, that they should do this to the people of Canaan. Specific thing to do with the people of Canaan. It's recorded in Deuteronomy chapter 7. The reason why they should do so is also given in Scripture. 
The reason that they should do so was that the Canaanites were bad people with a bad culture, which included, amongst other things, uh, shrine prostitution, that is, um, your regular worship involved going and engaging in prostitution because you believe in fertility gods. Um, So society is a right mess from the off in terms of relationships between people, but extended as far as child sacrifice. It was a bad culture. And it says in Deuteronomy chapter 9 and verse 5 that the Israelites were not given the land because they were such a great people that God said, oh, I'm going to reward you. You're so great. Have the land. It says very clearly there that the reason that they were being given the land was because it was to be a judgment on the people of Canaan. In the NIV, the little title for the section says, not because of Israel's righteousness. It's not because Israel was great that they got Canaan. Actually, God had a whole other purpose in Israel's conquering of Canaan, which was to bring about judgment on an evil culture and people living evil lives. For the sake of completeness, another reason is given, which is that the Israelites should utterly destroy the Canaanites once they go into the land, because otherwise they will end up being tempted by those evil ways. It says that in Deuteronomy chapter 20, verses 16 to 18. So those are the reasons why. It doesn't answer all of our questions, but those are the reasons that the Bible gives for why this should be the case. It's not in keeping with the modern, or the, mind, the mindset of the society that we live in. I remember seeing a documentary on TV probably a couple of years ago now. One of these ones where uh, somebody is taken through what their ancestors did. And they're, oh, that's amazing, I didn't know that. One of these people, that was, it wasn't a celebrity in, on this occasion, it was just an ordinary person, but it turned out that one of her ancestors had been a missionary who'd gone to an island in the Pacific and brought Christianity there The island was a place where they engaged in cannibalism. And amongst other things, in seeing this nation, sorry, this this, um, island come to Christ, one of the things that happened was they stopped eating each other. Which is good. Yeah, it's a good thing. Um, What was fascinating was that this lovely sort of middle-class English woman went to this island, and she had a clear agenda in her mind that she felt so sorry for these people that their indigenous culture had been wiped out by Christianity. And she went there with the agenda of apologizing for what her ancestor had done. So she landed in the sea plate, came up to the beach, and there's this massive party and reception committee going on of the people on the island saying, thank you, thank you, thank you. It's so wonderful for us to meet a relative of this person who came and set us free from the evil culture that we were living in. And the woman just could not compute. She was like, no, 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 I'm really sorry. He shouldn't have done that. And they're like, we used to eat each other. (laughs) So actually, there are times when it's right for a culture, actually, not to be redeemed but to be done away with and that's something that doesn't 
flow so well in the nation that we now live in in its culture. But that's at least one of the truths that we see here out of this command to destroy. It's also important to say that this was not ethnic cleansing in the sense that the Israelites were the pure people and everybody else was to be attacked. When the Israelites left Egypt, it says in Exodus 12 and verse 38 that many of the Egyptians came with them. They saw that the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, was the God of heaven and earth. They saw what Rahab saw and they chose to switch sides, leave Egypt and head up towards Canaan with the Israelites. So the body of people that was the other side of the Jordan were not all pure blood Hebrews. There was a mixed ethnicity, including a shed load of Egyptians. And it wasn't because of the Canaanites' different ethnicity that they were to be judged. In fact, in Deuteronomy 13, it says that if Jews, if Hebrews engaged in these evil Canaanite practices, that they should be destroyed in the same way. Everything heaped up in a pile and burnt. So it wasn't about ethnicity, and it would be unfair for us to think in terms of ethnic cleansing. It was actually ethical cleansing, rather than ethnic cleansing. So, nonetheless, for the people of Jericho, God being on the move basically meant that hell was about to come across the river and take over their lives. That is thorough judgment and punishment. And they were terrified. The Hebrew literally says that their hearts melted and their spirit left them. Now, a generation earlier, these people's parents had been confronted by a very similar reality that the Israelites had got out of Egypt, the Red Sea had been divided, and actually, it wasn't just a couple of tribal armies that had been beaten, it had been the imperial Egyptian army that they had just seen beaten by the hand of God as they came round a generation ago to come into the Promised Land. But that previous generation knew that the fact of the matter was still that the Canaanites were stronger militarily than Israel. There are various places in the Old Testament, in the first five books of the Old Testament, where God says, I'm going to give you, Israelites, a land that is occupied by people that are stronger than you. So the truth of the matter was that militarily, the Canaanites still were stronger than the Israelites. And the first time round, when the Israelites came up, they sent the 12 spies into, into Canaan, And they came back saying, we looked like grasshoppers in the eyes of the Canaanites. And they thought the same of us. And you know what? Their cities have got really big walls. Like, they are stronger than us. And the Canaanites thought it too. And they were not troubled, despite these people having come up round from Egypt and so on. They weren't bothered. They're like, they're just grasshoppers. We are fine. But something had changed Something to do with God being on the move. Uh, can we have these, the next slide, please? In the Second World War, there was this poster, Keep Calm and Carry On, which is what was going on the first time around. The first generation uh, in Jericho uh, got hold of this, and they kept calm. They weren't bothered by the grasshoppers, and they carried on. But the next generation, it was more like this. 
their reaction was utterly different. They were terrified. Now, there have been times in church history when whole communities which were once apathetic about God became gripped with an awareness of God and a fear of the Lord fell upon them. The most recent time that this happened in Britain was about 60 years ago in the uh, Hebrides. God stepped down to the island of Lewis and people stopped work because there was an awareness of God in the whole community. People at work in the field stopped because of an awareness of God's presence and a realisation that they had to deal with the reality of God, quite aside from any human endeavour to organise that feeling in people. The fear of God is meant to be the start of something more. Fear of God isn't the end of the story. The fear of God, Scripture tells us, is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of God is also the beginning of faith. And the same action of God that led the people of Jericho to be terrified, the same action of God led Rahab to faith. Now, this woman was not perfect. Uh, She was a prostitute. She was living an unethical life. And actually, even in this story, she's a liar. She's not a good woman. But she took a risk. And like the Egyptians who'd left Egypt with the Hebrews, she chose to swap sides. And this swapping sides wasn't just a kind of a wheeling and dealing, like I think they're going to win, I'd better sort out a deal for myself. It was based on a conviction that the Hebrews' God is the God that's in heaven and on earth. She had a a conversion, a change of belief. And she switched sides and effectively became an Israelite. In fact, she ended up being one of King David's ancestors. She's there in Matthew 1 as one of the matriarchs in the lineage of King David. And then, of course, of Jesus himself. And she evidenced this switch, this change of sides, by tying a scarlet cord in her window. There we go. It's a bit more than a cord. Maybe she wanted to really be seen. You wouldn't want to take a risk, would you? Now, it's really fascinating because this scarlet cord, or whatever it quite looked like, would have evoked something immediately in the minds of the Hebrews. Because when they were in Egypt, there there was the promise of an angel of death sweeping over the whole community to take the life of the firstborn. But if they took a lamb ate it together, but took some of its blood and put it over the lintels of the door into their house and marked themselves as, this is a household of the people of God, then the angel of death would pass by and they would not be destroyed. And so 
Here we have Scarlet in an opening into the house being put up in the face of a threat of destruction overwhelming the whole community. But the people in this house have declared themselves to owe their loyalty to the Lord and to have become part of the people of God and they're spared and saved from the destruction. It wasn't a random idea. It was something that was deeply meaningful. Interestingly, ask yourselves the question, what would have happened if all of the people of Jericho had repented? Now, we, we, it's a hypothetical question, but I think we, know, we can actually know the answer with some confidence because there's another book in the Old Testament that deals with a question very much like this. It's the book of Jonah. It goes to Nineveh. He's told to go and proclaim, Nineveh's going to be destroyed. And he says, no, God, I'm not going to do that because I know what you're like. I know that if I go and proclaim judgment over them, you're so good that you'll help them repent and then they won't all die and then I'll look a right plonker. So I'm not going. And God has his ways and means and, and gets him there. And it happens just like Jonah predicted it would on the basis of knowing God's goodness and then he sits down and he goes, God, you're so rubbish. You save all those people. You're too good. I knew you would be. So I think on the basis of that, we can have a little bit of confidence here that there was a doorway open for actually not just Rahab to walk through of repentance. Um, If any of the people of Jericho had chosen to trust in the Lord, I think their story would have turned out differently. It's not recorded for us that way, but I think we can be quite confident of that. It just so happens... As far as we know, Rahab was the only one who chose to put her trust in the Lord. There's another group of people in this story, two of them. The spies, the spies who were sent. And what happened for them was that they discovered what God was doing. Normally, when a military commander sends spies, you expect them to come back with sort of strategic intelligence, like the walls are this big. There's a little bit here where we might be able to attack it, or it's it's this far across. There are springs at this kind of distance where we could water our horses or whatever. But the spies didn't come back and communicate that kind of stuff to Joshua at all. What they came back and said was, really, God is on the move. They came back and reported that there was a change of heart amongst the people. Actually, the hearts of the people of Jericho had melted. And again, that was something that Moses had prophesied. said that, actually, you will get into this land with these people who are stronger than you, with their fortified cities, because God will go ahead of you and he will strike terror into their hearts, and they will melt away and flee before you. And so the spies came back really to say, it's happening. God is on the move. 
A generation ago, we felt like grasshoppers in their eyes, and they thought the same. Now, it could have been that the Israelites got a bit of confidence and said, we're not like grasshoppers, we've got God with us, we can do it. Whilst the people of Jericho still held to the same old self-confidence. But actually, what the spies found was that God was at work, not just through the people of Israel, but God was at work beyond them. And as they went out, they discovered that God was at work. I was in North Africa last year and heard a heartening story from someone who had gone just for a few days to a major city in North Africa, one with a million plus people, and had just decided to ask, as she went round in taxis for the few days, lots of taxi journeys, to ask each taxi driver, have you ever had any experience of dream or anything to do with the prophet Isa, which is Jesus in, um, in Arabic, and prophet in Islam. And what she found was that every single one of them said yes. Every single one. And uh, God is at work in the world. I think we can get really caught up with exactly what we're supposed to be doing. Jesus said, I only do what I see the Father doing. So I just want to finish off, really, with a simple encouragement to us. And this is where we get back to the gorilla and the basketball. See, it's so easy for us to be caught up in our activity and what we think we need to be paying attention to and to miss what God's doing around us. That's the point. And the spies had to go out into the land of Canaan. Uh, We're all going to go out from here at some point today. Some may be staying longer than others. But we're all going to go out from here and live our lives. So we're all going out. But the question I have really is, what is God doing around you? Where you live, where you work, what is he up to? Now, it may be that you need a spiritual gift of revelation to see that. And I'm sure that's true in part. Uh, This story, the picture is from Elisha being in a city that was surrounded and besieged. And he's fine about it, despite the fact they've all come specifically to get him. His servant's panicking. And he prays, God, would you open my servant's eyes? And the servant's eyes are opened by the Lord. And he sees that all around the Aramean army are armies of heaven. And the next day, as the Aramean armies come towards the city, Elisha prays very simply, God, would you strike them all blind? And they can't see. God is up to something beyond what we normally see. So part of it is a spiritual revelation. God, what are you doing? And that's for us to pray for. But also part of it, and the reason I chose to show the video with the basketballs and the gorilla, is part of it is just that we get caught up in activity. And it's not just about being really, really spiritual. Part of it is just what we choose to pay attention to. Do we look up at any point and ask, what's going on here? What's God up to? So that's it, really. Um, I'm going to pray.
for that thing I've just spoken about, about us being good spies, really. Um, if any of you want to dress up as James Bond and go to work, maybe... <laughs> no, it's not going to help, is it, really? Um, but really want to pray for us to be good spies. But then for those that need to just spend some more time receiving, I'm going to hand back to Simon, Band, and see where we go. So, Father God, uh, we want to see what you're doing. Lord, so often it seems to us like maybe you're, you're not doing very much or we can't see what you're doing. We don't know what you're doing. But Jesus said that The Father is always at his work. He's always at his work. And so, Lord, we want to see. We want to see what you're doing with our neighbours. We want to see what you're doing in our workplaces, in our colleges, so that we could be encouraged and so that we could join in with you, rather than simply calling down your blessings on what we're doing. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.